Zurbelein. Uh, I'm the Pinsultan Binapulasis Professor and the Director of the Energy Resources and Environment Program here at Johns uh, Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. And I'm very delighted to uh, host and moderate today's uh, event on uh, geoengineering, uh, looking specifically at some of the, the marine aspects of the, uh, of the issue. And uh, we have a very distinguished uh, panel here with guests uh, all the way from Australia. So um, that's uh, quite an uh, honor to host uh, this uh, delegation. What we're going to do is I'm first going to ask our guests just to introduce themselves and tell briefly about their work. Uh, and then after that, uh, I'm going to uh, ask for a brief presentation of the new report and the work that uh, this group has done on this topic. Uh, then we are going to go around the uh, table, the virtual table, and uh, get some, some initial remarks. I'm going to ask a few questions myself, and after that we are going to open it uh, for any audience uh, questions we might have. And we hope to uh, finish by 11.30 uh, or so. So uh, why don't we just go uh, around the virtual table and Sure, I'm going to put my mic at work. Can you hear that? My name is Simon Nicholson. I'm the director of a group for the forum. I'm an engineer at American University. Good morning, everybody. My name is uh, Jeff McGee, and I'm a, um, a law academic from the University of Tasmania. I'm also the director of uh, something called the Australian Forum for Climate Intervention Governance, which is a new research group at the University of Tasmania. The leading southern hemisphere of Australian forum on climate engineering law and governance issues. I'll just repeat that. I'm a law lecturer from the University of Tasmania Faculty of Law, um, researching in geoengineering governance, and I'm the um, deputy, one of the deputy directors of the Australian Forum for Climate Intervention Governance, and it's wonderful to be here today. Wonderful. Thanks again to all of you for joining us. And um, Will Burns sends his uh, um, greetings. He was unable to, to join us because of some, some last minute uh, uh, commitments, uh, but uh, he's very much here in spirit with us. Uh, he's done a lot of uh, work in this area and is a, a terrific thought leader in this area. So next, um, I think, Jeff, you are going to say a few words about the, the, uh, the report, give us a short presentation, and then after that we'll go uh, and, and hear everybody's uh, initial remarks. Sound good? Yes, uh, thank you, Johannes. Um, yeah, just by way of uh, brief, brief introduction, uh, this, uh, this project um, on the governance of marine geoengineering um, is a collaboration um, which is uh, certainly funded um, by the Centre for International Governance in, in, sorry, International Governance um, Innovation from Waterloo in Canada, and we have um, Sylvia McCarnas from uh, from CIGI, uh, here this morning uh, with us um, uh, to, to to hear our um, our findings in relation to, to to this issue of governance marine geoengineering. Um, it's a, funded by CIGI. Um, it's a collaboration between um, Australian and American universities, particularly the University of Tasmania, where Karen and I are from, and uh, the Forum for Climate Engineering Assessment, which is based here in DC um, at American uh, University. Um, so it's a, a collaboration between, as I said, Australian and US universities, funded by CG. And the topic um, of geoengineering um, is dear to all our hearts, um, both, uh, both universities. But particularly this issue of marine geoengineering, we think is um, is, is very important. Um, 
because, and we'll speak to this in a few minutes, because of some of the assumptions that are being built into the climate modelling for the IPCC AR5 report about the 1.5 to 2 degree uh, band of uh, temperature stabilisation, that, that is the target for the Paris Agreement, when we look at that closely, we um, see that there's necessity for large-scale uh, drawdown of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere from about 2030 onwards. And when we look at that issue and, and think how we might do these things, um, at the, you know, up to this point there's been a lot of talk about um, land-based carbon sequestration, particularly BECS, which is bioenergy with carbon capture and storage. But uh, we, we think that the, the oceans have a, a very important potential role to play in these activities around carbon dioxide removal and storage in order to, um, for the world to get near that 1.5 to 2 degree temperature stabilisation ban um, of, of the Paris Agreement. And the oceans also have um, potential um, significance in terms of solar radiation management technologies, uh, whether they, uh, at varying scales. So we, we're not necessarily talking about the um, stratospheric aerosol injection that many of you would have, would have heard about, which is an atmospheric-based type of um, geoengineering um, technique, but things like marine cloud brightening and solar uh, uh, sun shields, marine-based sun shields, things of this nature which are smaller scale, but also um, very um, importantly implicate the oceans um, in geoengineering. So uh, this, this is a conversation we think is, is new and to, to, to many will be something which um, uh, may, be, uh, may be controversial or, or may be provocative, but we think it's a conversation that's going to get stronger over the the next few years as we, we look at those Paris targets and, and also look at the um, increased sort of impacts of climate change which uh, seem to be coming on quicker than, than, than was expected. So, so th that's um, basically a, a summary of the report. Um, it's it's, a, it's a, essentially a legal or governance report. So we, we have a, a, a little on the, the sort of technologies uh, around marine geoengineering at the front of, front of the report, but largely we've tried to complement existing research in this area by digging more deeply into the existing international law that might be able to respond to these types of issues and looking at where international law might need to go in order to fill gaps and to better perform its function in relation to this type of issue. So that's the, the nature of the report and the, the, the nature of what we've been working on. So I'll um, perhaps hand over to Simon Jarvis. Yes, absolutely. Thanks. And, and to be and to be clear, Jeff, the report is currently under review and be, will be released in a couple of months. So, yeah, does that sound right? Um, so if you have not yet signed up to receive a copy of the report, there's a sign-up sheet for those in the room just outside. Um, otherwise, you can email any of us um, and we'll put you on the list to receive a copy of the report once it's released. Does that sound right, Sylvia? Thanks. Good. Thank you. Okay, so Jeff, has, uh, Jeff and Karen have invited me just to say a few words about the technology, technologies which are spoken about in the report. Um, so again, the subject matter for the report is, is geoengineering or climate engineering. Um, geoengineering is an umbrella term um, for a suite of technological response options to climate change. Uh, so geoengineering, as it's traditionally been used as a term, refers to two different buckets of technological response. On the one hand, as, as Jeff referenced, there are so-called carbon removal um, or negative emissions technologies, which might remove large amounts of CO2 or other greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere and put those gases into long-term storage or to beneficial use. That's the carbon removal side of geoengineering. Um, the other bucket are so-called solar radiation management technologies. Now, these are technologies that would reflect a certain amount of sunlight back into space before that sunlight can warm the atmosphere. So this is increasing the albedo of the planet, making some aspect of planetary systems more reflective to shoot sunlight back into space before it's captured by greenhouse gases. 
Um, this report deals with both sets of those technologies. Um, and that's something actually, Johannes, that we might speak about. Um, because the concept of geoengineering is being unpacked in international law and governance conversations um, as it applies to, to the, the ocean space, um, that there, there are kind of things to say about how we use geoengineering as a category. Now, in, in terms of the technologies which are considered in the report, and as Jeff referenced in the front end of the report, there's a description of some of these different geoengineering technologies that are being considered. Uh, what the report looks at are particularly geoengineering technologies or, pro or processes that have implications for the oceans, no surprise. Uh, and so under the solar radiation management head, there are two different types of technology which are considered. The first is, oh, there's a slide? Um, oh, thanks, yeah. Uh, so if we, can, if we can advance one more there, Johannes. One more, all right, let's, this one? Ah, there we go. Okay, so here are, here are our two buckets. On the solar radi radiation management side, two different classes of technology are considered. The first is, is marine cloud brightening. So the way that marine cloud brightening would operate is uh, a, a, above the oceans, there are low-lying marine clouds that could be brightened, it's speculated, by shooting up uh, salt water from the ocean surface up into the cloud layer um, to nucleate additional cloud formation. Right? Um, there's already evidence that this could operate because of the way ship tracks are formed as ships go across the ocean and put soot up into the atmosphere. This leads to up the brightening of clouds. And so the, the notion is this might be able to be, be done willfully by taking salt particles again from the ocean and putting them up into the cloud layer. That's the marine cloud brightening notion. Um, the other idea that's, that's examined very briefly in the report are so-called microbubbles micro or foam. The idea here is to brighten the surface of the ocean. Uh, using either some reflective substance, a, a type of foam, or, or, or some other substance that might be distributed across the surface of the ocean, um, or the bubbling of microbubbles up to the surface of the ocean through uh, under, underwater pumps. Um, this, this notion was actually played with as far back as 1965 in the United States in a report um, for the President's Scientific Advisory Committee, which said climate change is a thing, it needs to be wrestled with, it might be able to be counteracted, uh, through distribu distribution of reflective substances onto the ocean's surface. On the carbon dioxide removal side, um, in international law and governance conversations, the technique that has received the most attention is so-called ocean iron fertilization. Uh, ocean iron fertilization refers to the notion that putting iron particles into certain areas of the ocean might cause blooms of phytoplankton, and these phytoplankton blooms would take carbon dioxide from the atmosphere as they form. Um, some amount of the carbon dioxide in the phytoplankton, it's, it's, it's thought, would then sink to the bottom of the ocean and be held in long-term storage on the ocean floor. Um, this is an area that's received much attention in international law. Karen and, and Jeff may speak to it. Um, it's also one of the only areas where we've seen actually outdoor experimentation. So there have been at least 13 different experiments in the oceans of ocean iron fertilization technologies and practices. Artificial upwelling and downwelling is the notion that uh, nutrient-rich waters from deep under, in, in the oceans under the, under the photic layer could be brought up um, to cause blooms of life uh, closer to the ocean's surface um, using pumps. Ocean alkalinity or enhancement or liming um, is the idea that um, certain substances like calcium carbonate or olivine, um, certain minerals that are alkaline in nature, could be ground up and deposited into the oceans to counteract ocean acidification. If ocean acidification is counteracted in this fashion, um, the, the notion is that the oceans would then be able to accept more carbon dioxide from the atmosphere 
um, due to the interaction between atmosphere and, and oceans. Uh, and finally, blue carbon, which was actually talked about in a recent report from the National Academy of Sciences as something the US government might um, start to invest time and, and, and attention into. Um, blue carbon is the idea that coastal regions uh, could be used basically to farm carbon uh, through the development or maintenance of seagrass beds or through the farming or maintenance of, of kelp. Um, so, so again, this is the suite of technologies examined in the report. There are lots of other potential geoengineering options that could be on the table and that need to be considered as international legal mechanisms are developed. Um, I'll, I'll pass to our legal experts for more on that. Yes, look, I'll speak uh, to the, I guess what we would call the, the new demands that these ideas are going to place on the international law system. And uh, by that, I'm, I'm talking about the fact that, you know, what, what we're talking about here with these ideas is essentially, you know, perhaps planetary down to regional or national scale environment, a type of environmental re remediation, so large-scale remediation looking to respond to climate change. So, so it's a quite a different issue uh, to, the, to the, the system of international law around the oceans, which I'll, which I'll speak about um, uh, in, in the next few minutes. So it's important to keep, keep in mind the, the nature and the scale of these ideas in terms of the that the, the ideas are put forward and how it fits with this existing, what we call patchwork of oceans governance that we have in place. So essentially I'll talk about these, these sort of big picture issues and then Karen uh, will talk more specifically about some rules in the international law system under the London Protocol on Ocean Dumping that have actually been specifically developed for marine geoengineering purposes. So what does this uh, patchwork of um, oceans governance, international law around the oceans look like and how might it respond to marine geoengineering? Well, if we look at, if we want to describe this patchwork, the, the, the first place to look is what we call the um, global framework agreements, which are on the left of, of, of the slide up here. Um, these are the, um, the general treaties which provide general rules governing the world's oceans or the world's land or the world's atmosphere. So, for instance, here we're talking about um, uh, the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea or what we call, refer to as UNCLOS, um, the Paris Agreement on Climate Change, um, which is, of course, trying to regulate the atmosphere and deal with climate change, um, and also, in respect of land, things like the um, Convention on Biological Diversity. So we have these global framework agreements that could potentially intersect with these, um, as I said, new and quite, uh, uh, you know, uh, provocative ideas around this large-scale um, remediative sort of response to, to climate change through CDR and SRM. The next part of the international law system that could be relevant to these types of ideas that may have a governance function is what we call the sectoral agreements, which are in the middle of that slide. And what we're talking here is, uh, about here is a, pl a plethora of different um, treaties and institutions which govern either specific issues, um, such as, say, marine uh, ocean dumping, or particular geographic areas um, of, of the planet. Um, an example of one of these types of sectoral agreements would be what's known as the ESPU Convention 
on transboundary environmental impact assessment or um, a sectoral agreement that relates to a particular area would be something like the Antarctic Treaty or the Madrid Protocol under the Antarctic Treaty, which um, deals with issues in the Southern Ocean, which is a particular interesting area for ocean iron fertilisation. So we've got this, this plethora of, of potential sort of treaties and institutions that have, a, as I said, a, an issue uh, focus or a particular geographic spatial focus. And then finally, on the, on the far um, right of this uh, slide is um, the, the final part of this patchwork is what we call the unwritten rules of international law, which are called customary international law. And these are rules that are based, rules of international law that are based on state practice over time. And a good example of a rule here that may have some application to these marine geoengineering ideas is what's known as the rule uh, against significant transboundary harm. Uh, or the no harm rule. This is a, a type of tort uh, rule um, uh, which seeks to provide rules of um, obligation and responsibility uh, for activity that, that crosses borders and causes harm or that uh, causes harm to areas outside of um, a country's jurisdiction, that is, these global commons areas. So you can see from this diagram that there's a very sort of complex and multi-layered patchwork of potential treaties and institutions that may come into play and have some role in responding to these ideas around marine geoengineering. But however, our analysis suggests that there are three really significant limitations around this patchwork of potential institutions and rules and, it, and its ability to respond well to marine geoengineering. The first limitation is uh, geographical coverage. So, as I mentioned, many of these sectoral agreements um, only apply to certain parts of the world's oceans and activities that go on within those parts and only have um, uh, membership of countries uh, that are essentially interested in these parts of the world's oceans. So, for instance, if we look at the Antarctic Treaty System, which is the part of the world that we're from in the University of Tasmania, that is the Southern Ocean. Um, we have a very, very good um, treaty there called the, 90, the Madrid Protocol on Environmental Protection from 1991. This contains a very extensive regime of environmental assessment that applies to activities that have more than a transitory or minor effect. These rules potentially apply to marine geo geoengineering activities that might be carried out in the Southern Ocean, um, particularly, um, as I said, uh, ocean iron fertilisation. The Southern Ocean is a, a particularly anemic part of the ocean in the sense that it lacks um, uh, iron, so it's a particularly good site for uh, potential carbon dioxide uh, drawdowns through um, ocean iron fertilisation. Um, however, the Madrid Protocol and its really rigorous environmental assessment um, protections and requirements only apply to the Antarctic Treaty area, which is the area below 60 degrees south latitude. So any um, ocean iron fertilisation activities that are carried out above that space, um, or certainly above 55 degrees, where, where another potential uh, treaty from the Antarctic Treaty System called the CAMLA Treaty, or the Convention on Conservation of Antarctic Marine Living Resources, extends to certainly beyond, uh, above 55 degrees south. Um, these, these you know, very um, detailed and prescriptive rules around environmental impact assessment um, won't have application. 
So geographical coverage, um, and, these, and particularly in relation to these sectoral agreements, is, is the first limitation. Hannes, could I have another slide, please? The second limitation is the issue of state consent. And this is something that tri trips up, I think, a lot of, um, or, or certainly some uh, uh, natural science focus sort of work in this, in this area of, of, of marine geoengineering and its governance implications. Um, just because we have a treaty or have an international agreement or an international institution, that, does, that doesn't mean that all countries are legally bound to adhere to it. The international law system is essentially a consent-based system. And states must consent to treaties and their institutions before they are bound to them. So this means that countries ultimately, uh, under their state sovereignty, uh, must agree to be bound by a treaty before it will actually have a legal obligation in the international law system. So if you look at these two tables here, which, um, which in, and I hope I'm, I'm not, actually I might step aside here just to see and see this properly. Um, if we look at these two tables here, what we see is that there are a number of sort of key states which uh, we've identified um, uh, that relate to uh, geoengineering. Um, and we've looked at the particular consent that's been given by these key states uh, to the uh, key or most important treaties that might be relevant to marine geoengineering. And what we see from uh, these, um, these tables is that certainly in relation to the global framework agreements that I mentioned, being the Law of the Sea Convention, the Fish Docks Agreement, uh, UN Fish Docks Agreement, um, the uh, Convention on Biological Diversity, Framework Convention, Paris Agreement, we've got relatively good coverage and consent by the major key countries to those global agreements. Um, the obvious exceptions being China is not a member of the UN Fish Docks Agreement, um, as is Malaysia and, and the Philippines. Um, and, of course, the US is not party to the Law of the Sea Convention um, or the Biological uh, Diversity Convention. Uh, but, you know, it's, as a group, uh, the key countries are fairly well invested in providing consent into these global framework agreements. However, if we look across to the sectoral agreements, things have become a lot more, a lot more patchy. So, for instance, if we look um, at the London Protocol, which Karen will speak about, and it's one of the... Um, examples of rules that are specifically around um, marine geoengineering. Um, what we uh, see is that um, a number of, um, of, the, of the key um, countries we've identified um, are not um, party to, to, to that agreement. So, for instance, um, India, Indonesia, um, uh, the, the US again, Russia. So, so you know, some of the, the key sort of sectoral agreements, the, the level of consent that's been pro provided by key states is um, patchy. So not only do we have a, a kind of patchwork of agreements, but we have a patchwork of consent that actually binds key countries to these agreements. Uh, next slide, Johannes, please. Um, and I guess the, the, the final limitation that I'll, I'll just mention to do with these the, the rules, these institutions of international law and how they might respond to, um, to marine geoengineering is that most of these rules um, and most of these institutions that were on, on these tables, probably all except the London Protocol, were developed for 
without marine geoengineering in mind. They're essentially rules and institutions developed in different times for different reasons uh, and in different places. And so the obligations that are contained in those treaties, whether they be the, the, the global uh, framework style agreements or the sectoral agreements, the, the, the more narrow agreements, they're, they're often stated in quite general terms and they provide very limited guidance as to how they should apply to marine geoengineering. So key examples of this are, uh, for instance, in the Law of the Sea Convention, we have a general obligation on all countries uh, to protect and preserve the marine environment. That's in Article 192 of the Law of the Sea Convention. Um, as I said, that's a, a sort of broad, uh, all-encompassing sort of obligation um, that applies to all countries. And so, you know, questions become, well, you know, to what extent would, say, ocean iron fertilisation or, or, or ocean alkalinity, the fact that it's trying to actually redress climate change and help um, with problems like ocean acidification, how, how do you weigh up the benefits of doing that against potential risks of the activity in the sense that it might cause harm to the, uh, to, to the ocean. So, so the, you know, the, these quite general obligations, such as that, that in Article uh, 192 of the Law of the Sea Convention, they're, they're broadly expressed and provide only limited guidance as to how those sort of trade-offs might, uh, might and should be made by countries that are interested in those activities. Um, so the general obligations to conduct in, um, environmental impacts ass assessments, such as from customary international law from that no harm rule that I spoke about, again, are quite difficult to operationalise for specific marine geoengineering purposes. So most of the, these general uh, rules of international law that come out of these sort of framework uh, treaties in particular take quite a precautionary or very preventive approach um, to, uh, to, uh, uh, to two issues and that they're more focused on, on, on preventing harm, preventing pollution from specific activity um, that's, that's, that's occurred in the past, rather than, as I said, looking into uh, trade-offs between uh, activities that are designed to um, uh, lessen the effects of climate change versus the risks of allowing climate change to continue unabated. So they're not uh, particularly good at allowing for those sort of trade-offs. So the key issue for marine geoengineering governance as we see it is that there are no mechanisms to, to look at that bigger picture, that balancing of sort of risks of individual marine geoengineering proposals against the, the, the impacts of climate change. Um, so that's, as I said, a, 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 an introduction to the, the, the broad sort of landscape of this patchwork of agreements and patchwork of consent. So I'll just hand over to Karen to talk some, about some more specific works. Thanks, Jeff. Um, so I see a few familiar geoengineering um, uh, faces in the crowd and I know what they must be thinking after Jeff's presentation is, well, what about the 2013 amendment to the London Protocol? I'll just cue that slide, thanks, Johannes. So for those of you who don't, um, aren't familiar with this agreement, the London Protocol is one of two agreements, international agreements, that was developed to deal with the issue of the dumping of wastes at sea and to minimise uh, pollution uh, to the marine environment from these kind of activities. And in 2013, uh, parties came together and negotiated an amendment to the protocol uh, which deals specifically uh, with marine geoengineering. So it's intended to allow that protocol to 
govern and develop binding rules of international law for marine geoengineering activities. So as part of this report, we thought it's important to ask, well, to what, to what extent has this amendment enhanced the capacity of international law to govern marine geoengineering technologies, in particular the technologies that we have looked at under this report. Um, so I'll just cue the next slide, thank you. So I just want to start off by saying that the 2013 amendment, um, if you want to look it up, its code is LP.4 uh, in brackets number eight. Not a very inventive code, but um, that's how you can find it if you want to have a look for yourself. I just want to start by saying that this is a very significant development in international law. And the reason for that is this is the first time that states have come together and cooperated to develop international law rules specifically for any kind of geoengineering technology. So just keep that in mind as we move forward. Scientific experts and scientific expertise played a large role in informing those negotiations and the design of the amendment that came out of them. Now, the amendment establishes at the present time specific rules governing ocean fertilisation geoengineering. What it does is it specifically prohibits ocean fertilisation activities with the exception of legitimate scientific research. But what's also significant about this amendment is that it also establishes a framework that can be used to govern other marine geoengineering proposals into the future. The way this can be done is that parties to the London Protocol can list other marine geoengineering activities under an annex to the protocol and then they are governable or can be governed by the um, text of the amendment. A key feature of the amendment is that it establishes very detailed uh, assessment, risk assessment um, and reporting procedural mechanisms for marine geoengineering activities. And this includes mechanisms for consultation between states, uh, risk assessment, monitoring and ongoing reporting obligations. So there's a lot of really good stuff, as I said, for something that was the first shot for states to develop um, rules for any kind of marine geoengineering technology, this is quite um, an advanced leap ahead. However, it's always a however. However, um, our analysis shows that um, this amendment has some very significant limitations. The first limitation is that some of the key marine geoengineering proposals uh, that we've examined in this report are beyond the scope of the amendment to govern. And the reason for this is that the operative provisions of the amendment require or can only respond to marine geoengineering activities that involve the placement of matter into the ocean. Now, this isn't, um, you know, a, a huge... Um, this is very much in keeping with the scope and the operative provisions of the London Protocol itself. But what it means is that proposals such as marine cloud brightening that don't involve the placement of matter into the oceans are 
going to be beyond the scope of this amendment to govern. Regardless of whether they can be listed or not, the operative provisions can't apply to them. The second limitation that we've identified is that this amendment does not consider the need to address climate change. It only focuses on managing or minimising the risks posed by marine geoengineering technologies, so the activities themselves. It does not engage with that bigger picture that Jeff's referred to um, of the need to um, maybe weigh up the risks of these activities against that bigger picture risk of needing to address climate change and, cli and respond to climate change impacts. Finally, the amendment at the present time has had very poor uptake from states. So this relates back to what Jeff was talking about in terms of state consent. It has very poor uptake from parties uh, with, uh, with limited future potential parties. So I'll just explain what I mean by that. So this is not a standalone treaty, it is an amendment to an existing international agreement. And what this means, that is at best, the Marine Geoengineering Amendment will only ever bind parties to the London Protocol. At the moment, there are 51 states. And even then, it will only bind, of those 51 states, states that specifically accept and consent to be bound by the amendment. It will also only bind them when it enters into force. Two-thirds of those states, so 34 states, need to accept the amendment before it can enter into force and become an operative part of international law. At the moment, only four states in five years have accepted that amendment. And out of those key states that we identified, only the United Kingdom has accepted the amendment. So our analysis shows that at the moment it, looks that it appears that that amendment is unlikely to enter into force and become an operative part of international law anytime soon. What this means is that we can't rely on the London Protocol Amendment to comprehensively govern marine geoengineering activities and plug some of, the, some of those gaps in the international law patchwork at the present time. We need to be looking for other opportunities to enhance the capacity of international law. I'll just get the next slide there, Johannes. One option for the near future to enhance the capacity of international law to govern marine geoengineering activities are the negotiations for a new agreement on biological diversity beyond national jurisdiction, or BBNJ. So this is a new United Nations uh, agreement for the conservation and sustainable use of marine biodiversity beyond national jurisdiction, so in high seas areas. Now, the negotiation of this agreement is well and truly underway. There was a preparatory committee meetings uh, leading up to 2017, and last year in 2018, the first round of international negotiations between states was held um, in New York. Now, the purpose of these negotiations is to build on existing rules and principles, uh, particularly uh, under the Law of the Sea Convention, but also elsewhere in international oceans governance, um, to protect biodiversity in high seas areas from what they say existing and emerging activities, things like deep sea mining and bioprospecting, but also potentially marine geoengineering activities. 
I want to point out that BB&J is not a geoengineering specific agreement, but it may have significant implications for the governance of marine geoengineering technologies. For this reason, BBNJ, we see it, presents both an opportunity and a risk for marine geoengineering governance. So the opportunity is that BBNJ could provide more detailed international law rules uh, that are easier or, or, or clearer to interpret and apply to marine geoengineering activities. And the main example of this are proposals to develop detailed international environmental impact assessment rules for activities in or affecting areas beyond national jurisdiction. Uh, it also aims to build, um, develop rules to enable technology transfer and capacity building between developed and developing states. So there's some really good opportunities there. However, the risk is as generic rules, so non-geoengineering specific rules, they may not in the end be fit for purpose for marine geoengineering governance, the risk being in particular that the rules developed uh, may be overly prohibitive and perhaps um, the risk is that they might stifle responsible research, I'm not, I'm not saying deployment, I'm saying research into marine geoengineering um, technologies. So I just want to conclude by saying and leaving you with this afterthought that it's essential that geoengineering governance scholars both scientists and governance experts um, engage directly with the BBNJ process to ensure that you know, we enhance that opportunity uh, and that any rules that come out of that process um, are constructive and um, you know, uh, further the, and enhance the capacity of international law to govern marine geoengineering technologies and don't overly stifle responsible research from progressing. Uh, thank you very much, and I'll hand it over to Johannes. Wonderful. Uh, thanks so much for this uh, presentation and uh, all the updates on this, uh, this issue. I have one question for each of you. Um, so I'll uh, start with, uh, with Simon. Um, uh, some questions on the, the technologies that are being used uh, in, in geoengineering, and I guess in particular, uh, uh, marine geoengineering. So my question for you is, if you think of these different technologies, we can roughly think of them in terms of their cost, uh, effectiveness, and the risks associated to them. So what are some technologies that you think are both inexpensive and effective and low risk? And what are some technologies that might actually be risky and uh, concerning for us? It's not an easy question, Johannes. Um, so one, one of the technologies that's referenced in the report is so-called marine cloud brightening. Um, and so marine cloud brightening is being thought about um, potentially as a way to um, target geoengineering interventions regionally. The Australian government, in fact, I'm, I'm, um, I'm from New Zealand originally, don't confuse our accents, um, but I can, I can speak to the Australian experience a little bit. The, the Australian government is interested in marine cloud brightening potentially to offset the heating impacts that are destroying the Great Barrier Reef. Right, and so watch, watch that space closely. It could be that the Australian government moves forward with research program in the, in the near future around marine cloud brightening. Um, all of the work on marine cloud brightening to this point has been either observational or computer modeling and speculative. Right? Um, and so as with many of these different technologies, 
uh, we don't know yet exactly if and how marine cloud writing might operate if it were brought into the world. Um, the, the leading researchers tell us it would be relatively cheap and could be effective, but all bets are off. Who, who actually knows? Um, and this, this, this actually opens up a challenge for the governance space, of course, because governance has to be anticipatory. It's got to get out in, some, in front of something that doesn't really exist yet. Um, and it also, as, as Jeff and Kieran both referenced, has to walk the tightrope between being too shackling, that is constraining legitimate research, um, or being um, reasonably permissive to encourage research that might actually shed light. On the carbon removal side, um, blue carbon is the thing that is, is, is something that just kind of needs to happen. We need to kind of look after coastal areas. Um, there are lots of co-benefits in addition to carbon storage um, that come from sequestering carbon in, in, in coastal regions. Uh, when we stray into ocean iron fertilization and some of these other things that might have impacts on biodiversity in the oceans, uh, then the risk profiles get a little scary from, from my perspective. Thank you very much. That's, uh, that's, that's very useful. Uh, this seems to be one of those areas where governance really needs to also encourage the right kind of responsible, effective research. Because we really, there's so much uncertainty around these technologies. We haven't actually tried them uh, in the real world. So it seems like there's a lot we need to learn. Um, Jeff, uh, do you, I was quite interested in, in your remarks on these uh, important or key states. And so I wanted to ask, how many are there? How, how many states do we need to have as a kind of bare minimum to make some effective progress on these issues? What are those states and what does that mean for international governance? Yes, thanks, thanks Johannes. Um, look, the, the, when I spoke about key states, essentially what um, I was talking about... Um, yeah, there's actually... We could pull that slide up there. Johannes, with the with them listed. You're already on it. Okay, great. <laughs> I hope my head isn't in the middle of them. But uh, um, the, um, the the states that are listed here on, on these two columns on the far left of, the, of both these tables is what we identified as the key states for for, for marine geoengineering purposes. And the way we did that um, was to identify those states that um, ha had been involved in marine geoengineering research. Um, to date, or were currently involved in it, or have the capacity um, through, you know, advanced um, oceanography and, and scientific capacities to become involved in marine geoengineering uh, research in the near future. So, so all the, all these countries uh, here, as I said, have been involved um, in one way or another in past uh, small-scale marine geoengineering um, uh, research. Um, and, uh, and the others that are listed there that haven't yet been involved are the leading kind of states with the technical capacity to, be, to become involved um, in the near future. You, you might notice that there are, there are a few on there that might be a little uh, anomalous in, in the sense you might be scratching your head to wonder um, how they've been involved in marine geoengineering. Um, there's, for instance, Malaysia, Philippines and Indonesia, some Southeast Asian countries um, are, are listed there. Um, well, the, the reason we've included those on the table is that back in 2008, uh, there was a private uh, company, actually an Australian uh, private company, uh, was involved um, in uh, proposing um, an uh, ocean fertilisation experiment in the Sulu Sea area, which is in the waters that are adjoining those, those three countries. So, so th that's why um, we have, uh, you know, 
uh, perhaps unu some unusual um, countries uh, such as that on the um, on, on the table. Uh, Chile uh, is on there as well because in 2017, um, a private Canadian company uh, announced that it was intending to conduct an, again an ocean iron fertilisation um, experiment, experiment off the coast of Chile. Uh, we're not sure if that's taken place or not. There's been no publicity as to a yes or no in that regard, but certainly it was in the planning that was in 2017. Um, India was involved in an ocean iron fertilisation experiment called the Low Effects Experiment uh, back in the um, uh, back in the late last decade. Um, South Africa has been included because South Africa's um, currently uh, been uh, joined some research in relation to solar radiation management modelling. Um, so, so as I said, even some you know, what we would consider perhaps to be developing countries um, are, are getting some profile in terms of the research, and so we've listed them as, as being amongst these 20 or so key states. Right, thank you. So um, I, I'll follow up on that uh, with, with another question. So would you say that in general, uh, marine geoengineering has this feature where an individual country could go and engage in it? Uh, if, suppose that a country said, you know what, um, climate is an existential threat to us, we need to do something about it, we're going to go and we're just going to do it. Is that something that's technologically, economically feasible? Because we've heard this many cases when we talk about solar uh, uh, radiation management, that this is something that uh, an individual country could do uh, to a significant extent on their own. So is that true of marine geoengineering as well? Um, yeah, I, I see what you mean by the comparison between um, solar and, and what we have here. And look, something I think it came up in Simon's talk actually is the potential for a country, maybe not to do this with the intention of having a global impact, but to use marine geoengineering proposals also to have a regional or local uh, scale effect at addressing climate change impacts. So uh, in Australia at the moment, there are uh, three proposals uh, being funded uh, by the Australian government, uh, research proposals for the Great Barrier Reef, uh, one of them being a marine cloud brightening proposal. Uh, so you may be familiar with the issue of coral bleaching on the Great Barrier Reef, so marine heat waves uh, are, are the main culprit of that, and the idea is to um, be able to respond to marine heat wave events, uh, maybe not for the whole reef, but for key uh, sites. The Great Barrier Reef um, isn't just a, a very um, spectacular World Heritage Site, but is of great economic and industrial importance to uh, Australia and the Australian state of Queensland. So the idea is to develop uh, pr uh, technologies that maybe can be deployed uh, at key sites to protect them during um, these marine heat wave events. Uh, one idea is to brighten marine clouds using salt particles. Uh, another is the proposals to develop a very fine um, uh, uh, calcium carbonate film that would sit on the surface of the water and act like a very, very small scale SRM reflecting sunlight and heat away from the, um, the corals. Another which um, it, it's, I guess, somewhat analogous, though, though not quite, to ocean upwelling and downwelling are proposals to develop large marine fans that will draw um, water from about 10 to 30 metres deep and bring cold water up onto the reef to um, provide some relief during these heat wave events. So they're examples of uh, smaller, 
local or regional scales marine geoengineering um, that could be done by an individual state rather than needing a global cooperative effort. Yeah, can I just add, add to that? Yeah, Hannes. Yeah, uh, that's a, a good uh, a good question and a good point uh, because. When we hear that narrative about, you know, a rogue country or a single country being able to um, engage in geoengineering, it's usually in relation to the stratospheric aerosol injection issue um, where, um, you know, certain figures have been bandied around, you know, somewhere between 2 and $10 billion might be enough to, you know, uh, develop aircraft that could deliver aerosols into the stratosphere which would have a, a planetary cooling effect. And so the issues become, you know, should one country be able to pull the lever on the global thermostat. You know, that's, that's the, the kind of discussion we've been having for five or, five or even ten years. I, I, I think, um, as I think it's what, building on what Karen said, I, I think marine geoengineering's slightly different in the sense that um, it's certainly got the, um, the, the go-alone factor in respect of smaller scale or regional scale um, activities that, that, that Karen was mentioning, such as these marine cloud brightening um, uh, instances, um, say, to protect things like the, the Great Barrier Reef. Um, I mean, if you, if you read the, the science on marine cloud brightening, it can be scaled up, and, um, you know, to, uh, to, to vast areas of the ocean, but the, the, you know, the, the amount of ships and the amount of resources that would be required to do that would be um, very, very significant and, um, you know, maybe beyond the scope and capacity of one country. It would probably need a, a more cooperative effort. So, um, you know, for good or for bad, I think the solar, um, the solar um, or stratospheric aerosol injection is, is, is the one that's cheap and easy to do for one country, whereas these ideas are perhaps, particularly at large scale, would, would be more difficult. The, 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 the confounding set of um, response options here relates to dumping, right? And, and so it, it, uh, if, if one imagines ocean iron fertilization um, as a program that one country or one coalition of countries wanted to undertake um, and dump into the open ocean, um, or even the, the the ocean liming notion. I mean, famously, an individual has gone out and thrown some iron filings into the ocean and called it a geoengineering experiment. Russ George, some years ago, um, who, who, who then became branded as the first geo saboteur for the work that he was doing around <laughs> geoengineering. Right, and, and, and so um, I, I think the question actually is an interesting one, um, and it suggests the need for international law not just to look at states, but also the, the, the operation of, of other actors in the international system and, 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 and the role that they might play in geoengineering activities. Excellent. Thank you. That's very useful. I think the, uh, the, the difference between solar and, and marine uh, geoengineering and the, the governance challenges is a very important one. Most of the academic literature is really focused on the solar and, in particular, the, the idea of uh, sending those iron... Uh, particles up there. And I think it seems like we have a far broader set of issues and each of them is a little different from dumping to marine clouds and, and all that that we need to look at in, in studying this, this issue. So that's very useful to know. Uh, finally, um, so uh, Karen, for you, my, my question was, what is the latest update if you think of these negotiations, whether it's the biodiversity being national jurisdictions or more broadly, to what extent is geoengineering on the table? Are people talking about this issue? It's, is it an active conversation or is it still something that's contained in specific uh, forums and uh, negotiations that are only about geoengineering? a really good um, issue to raise. So um, interestingly, geoengineering has 
been mentioned um, by some countries and NGOs within the BBNJ PrepCon or preparatory committee meetings. So um, uh, in 2016, in one of the meetings, the African group suggested that marine geoengineering activities should be specifically listed as requiring, automatically requiring um, and triggering environmental impact assessment rules under BBNJ uh, if they're ever negotiated. Um, so that was raised in 2016 and then in 2017 an NGO, the High Seas Alliance, uh, also specifically um, mentioned marine geoengineering or geoengineering activities in relation to, again, environmental impact assessment rules and said that there should be some international decision-making process uh, that's engaged uh, under any new agreement for uh, approving uh, or allowing uh, marine geoengineering to go ahead. So these are, uh, I wouldn't say that it's a major focus of, certainly you see uh, marine bioprospecting and issues like that are, are far more prominent, but we are seeing it being thought of, and I guess this raises the possibility that some states and or uh, non-governmental organisations may use the BBNJ negotiation process, even though it's a broad process, to develop rules that can govern or are intended to um, govern marine geoengineering activities. Excellent. So those were my uh, three questions. So what I'd like to do next is I'd like to invite the audience members to, uh, to ask any questions. And, and we have the mic there that we can, we can use. So um, did I have a doc you wanted to get us started? this work? Okay. okay. Uh, I'm Doug Hengel, an adjunct professor here in the ERE program. So I understand the desirability to use orga existing organizations which have expertise in the area of, of oceans to, to do some of this, this work that you're discussing. Um, but given the patchwork nature of membership, et cetera, et cetera, uh, and that I, I wonder about trying to deal with with marine geoengineering separate from the other kinds of geoengineering, uh, that uh, what about the UNFCCC as the um, platform in which to discuss, since we're talking about we only need this to, to deal with the climate change issues, so why not try to do it in the UNFCCC process, which still has everyone uh, uh, involved? I think that's the um, you know sixty-four thousand dollar question, so to speak. Um, why has governance, marine or otherwise, been dealt with outside the UNFCCC regime? So, it's in the report. We didn't get a chance to touch on it in today's presentation. There has also been some, um, albeit non-binding, um, decisions passed by the Convention on Biological Diversity relating more broadly to geoengineering activities as a whole. Um, it's not an issue that we've dealt with in this report, but if I can just comment, um, I think it's something that needs to be at least considered within that regime, but um, it is also a regime that's, you know, got quite a few contentious issues that it's already dealing with, um, and that's, I think, putting it quite mildly. Um, and I guess, you know, to what extent does it have the capacity to take on another? And, let you know, this is... a, a complex, challenging and 
you know, for many quite a um, confronting issue, the question of geoengineering. So, you know, the risk, I guess, might be is that by bringing, bringing and I'm not saying that it shouldn't be discussed, but the risk may be that by bringing this in, will that torpedo other efforts within that regime to develop governance more broadly concerning climate change? And it's probably a question that we need to start thinking about um, into the future. Um, would anyone else like to? Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Doug. That was that's that's a really um, a good 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 point. Um, certainly, the UNFCCC is logically the most obvious international treaty and institution to deal with geoengineering, including marine geoengineering, because um, virtually all countries are in the framework convention, including the US and China and all, all the major players. Um, so, 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 that, so that's, uh, that's true. Um, so it's logically the answer, but I, I think from what Karen's saying, and I agree, is that the, the, the plate of the UNFCCC seems to be full or overflowing. So there is some danger of trying to introduce a new issue into, say, the Paris Agreement process um, may, um, may, may uh, overfill the plate, uh, so to speak. Um, one thing which uh, is worth mentioning, though, and is contained in our report, is that, um, and, and actually Will Burns, our, our, our co-author, and Neil Craig did a paper on this for CG a couple of years ago, and I think there might actually be some copies outside on, on, the, on the desk as you leave, that under the existing uh, rules of the Paris Agreement, um, countries are required to make what's known as a nationally uh, determined contribution, which is a, a non-binding promise to, to, to mitigate emissions um, uh, from 2020 onwards. Um, the way the UNFCCC in Paris is structured, it talks about national emissions being the balance between sources and sinks and reservoirs. Now, of course, if you think about carbon dioxide removal, these CDR-type technologies we're talking about here, um, it's not straining the, the language of sinks and reservoirs to say that that type of activity is enhancing sinks and reservoirs. So, certainly, um, Will and, and, and Neil's um, paper suggests that um, countries could be making much more of marine geoengineering is a part of their NDC commitments. Um, to date, countries haven't done that. It's, um, there's been more a focus, um, as I said, on land-based sequestration through bioenergy with carbon capture and storage. But certainly, we think under the existing, um, existing you know, rules of the UNFCCC and, and Paris, uh, countries could look a lot more closer, uh, perhaps for the next round of NDCs, of um, making commitments in relation to marine geoengineering sequestration or, or carbon dioxide removal. And so what, what the Paris Agreement then does in effect is to suggest that carbon removal is a form of mitigation and should not be considered geoengineering. Right? The, the most recent um, special report on 1.5 degrees from the IPCC gestures in the same direction, um, suggesting that solar radiation management should be put into its own category and that the geoengineering label should go away. Right? Um, that the confounding thing when it comes to the oceans is ocean iron fertilization because it's potentially such a disruptive form of carbon removal that it might be better to think about it as, as more like forms of solar radiation management than like, say, planting forests or direct air capture, land-based forms of carbon removal. Right? And so the, 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 the legal landscape is still fragmented and fractured, but the, cat the categories matter in how we talk about these different technologies. Excellent. Uh, do we have other questions? Uh, yeah. 
Hi, I'm uh, Sarah Jordan. I'm a faculty member here as well. Um, I just wanted to start by saying uh, that the panel was really great. I really enjoyed the discussion. I also agree with the last comment about categories because these are such vastly different uh, actions. I have a question, a two-part question. The first is, you know, you made some comments regarding these more small-scale experimental forms of marine geoengineering, but I'm interested in your sense on the pulse of whether or not you see any large-scale action happening from any individual uh, country. So how, how I, in essence, how urgently do we need these legal frameworks? And then the other side being um, the comment about the importance of flexibility. And I'm interested um, because I, I wonder if there's actually been any discussion so far about uh, keeping what greenhouse gases are in the ocean in the ocean. Primarily, like we know that the carbonates in the shells, those are going to be there for a long time. But there are things like methane hydrates that as war warming happens, there's potential for large-scale release of additional methane. And I'm wondering if there has been any discussion about these potential large-scale releases of methane from the hydrates at the, at the sea floor, um, if there has been a discussion about technologies or way to, ways to potentially mitigate that into the future. Because, I, I, of course, there is the, the, the mitigation, let's look at cooling, but what about these enormous risks under present warming? Uh, yeah, thank you. you you're two, two very good, uh, good points. Just, just in relation to the, the, the first one, that is um, questions of um, uh, small-scale um, experimentation, which we've, we've spoken about. And, and you asked, um, you know, are countries um, planning large-scale um, field testing or deployment um, at, this, at this point in time? Um, look, the answer to that is no. Um, the, the activity is more around the... Um, research and development um, uh, phases. Um, that leads to the question of urgency. You know, what, what urgency should we have in order to develop new rules and institutions, given that uh, we might be uh, still in that sort of research phase? I would still say it's urgent because, and this comes back to the um, discussion of the IPCC modelling around carbon drawdown, um, the, the, the worst kind of situation uh, we can get into is kind of where we appear to be travelling at the moment, where our climate modelling is building in these ma assumptions of massive drawdown of carbon dioxide from 2030 onwards, um, you know, and up to 2050, where it's meant to be about 10 gigatons, which is about a, a fifth of current global emissions being drawn down yeah, by 2050, which is not that far off. Um, we, the worst possible situation is we continue to build in those assumptions but don't do the research and the development to actually see whether we can meet those assumptions, okay? So I think the urgency with the governance is to, you know, really kind of firm up the, um, the, 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 the space for, for, for research and for, um, you know, small-scale field testing to know whether we can actually do these things, okay? So, so you know, deployment, large-scale stuff is down the track, but the urgency, I think, is still there. I'll just add to that by saying that, at least within the geoengineering governance literature, um, there is a, a relatively broad consensus um, that we should have governance, uh, you know, in place at least before deployment. And 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 you know, if you, um, you know, without governance, I, I think, you know, there would be some hesitation to progress 
with research and, you know, the, the trick with a lot of these geoengineering proposals, whether they're um, marine or, or solar, is that there is, a, I guess, a, a spectrum from lab-based research to deployment where there's a bit of a grey zone in the middle where all of a sudden is something a research experiment or is it deployment, particularly when you progress to larger scale outdoor experimentation. So again, that enhances the urgency to have uh, clear uh, rules at an international level and or at a domestic level to govern uh, not just full-scale deployment at the end of the day, but the research process in a way that firstly, you know, manages risks, ensures that things are, you know, experiments, particularly something like ocean iron fertilisation is done in a responsible manner to minimise risks of harm to the marine environment and or transboundary harm to other states, but also enables that research, as Jeff said, to progress so that, um, you know, not only scientists but policy makers can be aware of, you know, are these proposals, some, some which are not much more than, than just concepts at the present time, how feasible are they and to what extent can they deliver that carbon dioxide drawdown that's being assumed in climate change models? actually looking to potentially use methane hydrates as a resource, which leads to the risk of their release. So that's why I'm interested in whether or not, for example, there has been any discussion of that type of mitigation. Not, not that I've seen. Mike McCracken, I'm a climate change scientist with the Climate Institute. So there's been rather um, uh, sort of easy acceptance, I guess, toward this Paris Accord numbers of one and a half to two degrees. The numbers chosen presumably because that would keep the temperature from a runaway effect, and you might need it. But, but what that really fails to do is, is recognize what can happen with respect to sea level. I mean, if you go back to the last glacial maximum 20,000 years ago, sea level was down 120 meters, meters, and global average temperature is estimated to have been down about 6 degrees C. That's 20 meters per degree, okay? And we have about 60 or 70 meters of sea level equipment in Greenland and Antarctica now. Um, and so when the world was 3 or 4 degrees warmer, they really weren't there. So it's it's possible to go and the sensitivity is really quite high. I mean, coming out of the last glacial for 120 centuries, sea level rose an average of one meter per century when the global average temperature was rising on average one degree every 2,000 years. And we're going up one C in 50 years, okay? So this notion that it's gonna be less than a meter in this century which is what IPCC reports have been putting out, not really very clearly saying that, that it's leaving out estimates based on ice sheets sort of moving. Um, so one and a half to two degrees is really high. And you'd really like to be back. And there are groups that are really starting to push in various ways to pull CO2 
back down. I mean, in fact, it is not clear in the Paris negotiations that the idea was to go up and stay there. Um, I mean, if you ask Todd Stern, I've asked Todd Stern about it, he says, we never got to that point. We were so happy to just get to a number. We never got to whether it should come back down again, and it wasn't clear you could. But there may be seed removal processes that can do it. So, um, so there's a real long-term interest in doing this. Um, and then I, I, I guess what I'm curious about is the notion of you talking about getting to this comparative analysis of, of impacts in the ocean directly from putting dumping or something versus the long-term need to really do something about the issue and how you even formulate this comparative risk thing. Uh, how do you get people to do it? And, and while I'm at it, uh, I just want to say the other reason about going in in the ocean and Russ George's intent and Russ George's argument, which I'm not, I'm not sure other scientists agree with, is that you can fertilize anywhere in the ocean and create, and there's enough nutrients around to do it, and you're going to create marine protein, and the world needs food and marine protein. So it's not just a climate change issue. It may well be a marine protein issue. So how do you even figure out how to get into international negotiations on this? So, I mean, I, I think the governance issue is huge. I don't know how you figure out how to get there. The, the, the first question, Mike, is, is incredibly complex, as, as you know. Um, and and the, the very short response is that the 2 and 1.5 degree figures are, are not based on science strictly. They're politically negotiated targets. But if, if, one, if one starts to walk into those negotiations and say, we're already past the one degree threshold, or there's already so much carbon in the atmosphere that we're blowing it, then that takes the wind potentially out of the negotiations process. So, so, that, so that, that, that's the argument. Yeah, and then, and then that becomes the, delic the delicate moral hazard balance, which is being talked about all the time when it comes to climate engineering. Right, if one introduces what some might see as magical responses into the negotiations process, look, we've got the technological answer that will take us down to the temperature target. Why bother with traditional forms of mitigation? That, that, that then becomes a hard line to walk as well. Right? And, and so in, in an imperfect negotiation system, um, where 1.5 was already seen as far more ambitious than, than most countries could imagine getting to, and the 1.5 report suggests is, is out of the bounds of possibility absent the use of large-scale carbon removal technologies, Right, to then start talking about solar radiation management, it's just, it's just not in the heads of negotiators yet. We're not even close to having a, a realistic conversation about comparative risk assessment beyond these sorts of academic fora. Right? It's, a, it's, a, it's a strange world we find ourselves in.
Yeah, my, I, I, th I think you make a, a, a very good point, Mike, and, and it, it, I think it's illustrative of um, when we look at the law of the sea and we look at the ocean dumping treaties, I mean, th these are rules that have been around since the 1970s and 1980s, and what, what we're trying to do with this, this marine geoengineering is to kind of retrofit, as I said, a, a large-scale kind of environmental remediation, perhaps at a planetary scale, back into these rules that have been created for much more narrow and defined issues, right? So, for instance, with that um, Article 192 of the Law of the Sea Convention about protecting and preserving the environment, it's like an all—it's it's like an all-or-nothing situation. Either you you are protecting or you're not. There's no there's, and and you know so perhaps if you wanted to do ocean iron fertilisation or enhance alkalisation, you may a country may well you know breach that section by trying to do the good of you know drawing down carbon to deal with the the, the climate issues. So the, there's not the trade-off mechanisms within those those treaties uh, because the treaties were about much more defined and narrow and easier issues, okay? So, so you're right, you, 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 so what our institutions need, what our, our, our governance needs, and perhaps this is what you know, Doug was saying, why it you know, perhaps might need to come into the UNFCCC, is we, we need a kind of forum, and tr treaties, institutions and forums that are able to uh, deal with that risk-risk trade-off between you know, doing this, these sort of things that carry their own environmental and, and, and social and economic risks, and, and some of them are quite substantial, and, and balancing that or trading that off against, you know, not doing them, which is, you know, perhaps metres of sea level rise and other types of things that also have, you know, grand scale social, ecological and um, human risk attached to them. So, yeah, our, our, our institutions aren't up to that and we need to push them forward. Hi, thank you. Sylvia Mitsunas from CG. Um, a really interesting panel presentation, it's great to hear it. Uh, a little bit discouraging in terms of uh, how we can institutionally respond as, as a global community. And you uh, talked about how the existing mechanisms aren't really the right ones, they're dealing with old problems and we're trying to squeeze in uh, ocean geoengineering and perhaps any kind of ge uh, geoengineering. What are your thoughts about a way forward on new agreements or new frameworks or declarations? How do you see this going forward? I, I think the UNFCCC would have trouble dealing with this uh, because there would be a lot of blowback about the point of we need to mitigate by reducing our emissions rather than trying to, to uh, use technology to, to get rid of the problem. But uh, So how do you see the options for developing new mechanisms for governance out there in the international community. And the other question um, I'd raise is, when we're talking about the kind of effects that might come from some of the geoengineering approaches, uh, have you given any thought to liability issues? Would there be some liability arising from uh, one country taking action that might have transboundary effects? How could we deal with that? Would it be good to have a compensation committee or, uh, I mean, it's hard enough to deal with transboundary harm even now. Um, so any thoughts you might have on that would be of interest. I'll just start um, and then hand over to Karen who might talk about the um, compensation liability um, issues. But I, I guess when we, we think about those tables and the, you know, the, the, the key states, it comes down, I think, to, you know, 15 or 20 um, key states in relation to, to marine geoengineering. So one possibility, if it's not dealt with under the 
the global multilateral forums like the UNFCCC is for, you know, what's termed a mini-lateral forum of, you know, the key players. And, you know, certainly if we go to international relations theory, you know, it tells us that the, 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 the less seats you have around the table, often the more um, easier it is to get agreement and you can have a higher level of ambition in terms of the commitments that countries are prepared to make. Um, so, so certainly, um, you know, in, in terms of possibilities of new institutions, it may actually be easier um, to get those key, key states around the table um, in a way that, you know, doesn't require the agreement of 200 countries, any one of which in a consensus decision-making system can put up its hand and, and say they disagree for, for whatever reasons and torpedo the whole process. So that's certainly uh, worth thinking about, I think. Um, but just to, I guess, play a devil's advocate with what Jeff's just said is that's one way of looking at, at you know, moving forward with governance. Who are the key players? How do we regulate their behaviour? But once we start talking about technologies that are likely to have a global impact, the question then also becomes, well, who else should we be including if these technologies are likely to have impacts beyond or, or, even, or benefits beyond the territory of those states? You know, is it appropriate um, to just include them around the table when designing a governance regime specifically for these technologies. So that's just something to, to think about as well when, when we ask that question of, well, where do we move forward with, with governance and how should we go about doing it? But in relation to your second question, Sylvia, in terms of liability, you're right. We, we do have some mechanisms existing under international law and that they are dealt with in the report that deal with both um, create rules concerning transboundary harm and may respond to uh, breaches of those rules. So the primary rule is the duty to prevent transboundary harm under customary international law. It's also enshrined somewhat in international agreements like the um, uh, UNCLOS, Law of the Sea Convention. Uh, if that rule is breached and significant transboundary either results or a country hasn't done enough to try and prevent it because this is a due diligence obligation, that triggers secondary rules of state responsibility. And so a uh, state may be held responsible and or liable to pay reparations um, for its actions if um, a, it's responsible for an activity uh, that either causes harm or that, you know, they haven't done enough to prevent it. The trick, though, is that, um, uh, as you said, these rules are challenging particularly in the fact that they only respond primarily to state behaviour. So it's been a bit of talk about um, individual actors such as Ross George, um, you know, engaging or private companies engaging in marine geoengineering. International law, it's a little bit more tricky for those rules to respond to those kind of, of actions. Uh, and also, again, we're dealing with a largely consent-based system. Um, for the most part, uh, if you want, you know, if one state would like to bring another before the International Court of Justice, to hold them accountable for any harm that is caused, well, that again is going to usually involve the consent of that state. And if it doesn't consent, um, it's going to be a bit tricky. So I agree that any, um, the development of any new rules will require robust liability and or even some kind of um, insurance type mechanism, uh, not only uh, to respond to any harm caused, but also to enhance confidence in these technologies, which again is important to allowing um, you know, research to, to start to progress. So I think we had one more question. We have time for one more question, so I think you were next. Thanks very much. 
Um, hi, everyone. Uh, lovely panel. It's really wonderful to see some Aussies up there with some New Zealand neighbors and, and more. Um, my name is Stephen Rodan, and I'm the CTO of a nonprofit called Restore Coral. We're based in CTO of Restore Coral. And um, I'm a research affiliate of the MIT Sea Grant College program, and before this, I was an engineer at the NASA Jet Propulsion Lab. Um, Mark, I was actually uh, an engineer on some of the satellites that measure ocean height. Um, for the past 25 years, we've consistently risen four millimeters each year, so that would be about 10 centimeters, and for the 40% of the world population that live on the coast, uh, that's more than feels comfortable. Um, and I'd love to talk to you more about, you know, countries that are actually focused on sustainable development and turning the, the clock around, so maybe we can talk afterwards. But my question is uh, uh, focused on some of the, the points you guys talked about, specifically on waste management. You talked a bit about it, and you've put a positive spin on dumping and the impact on ocean biological life forms. Um, I think everyone in this room may know that the reefs are in trouble, um, whether it's from temperature, acidity, disease, or contamination. Um, and for maybe those that don't know, the, the algae that lives within the coral, the zooxanthellae, is actually very like responsible for taking carbon dioxide out of our air and creating the coral substrates. Um, so I want to talk about the Great Barrier Reef, something very dear to me. I've, I've lived on the reef, actually. And uh, right next to the Great Barrier Reef is the world's oldest rainforest, the Daintree Rainforest, which is what we're turning into uh, one of the largest sugarcane operations in Australia. Um, and what I didn't hear about was uh, the, you know, I love the retrofit for large-scale environmental remediation, but with these massive sugarcane industries and all the rain that comes in the rainforest, which brings nutrient runoff into our systems, what we've been finding is uh, we got these algal blooms, a lot of these proteins that come in, uh, and it's provided a lot of fodder for the crown-of-thorns starfish. And for those that don't know, the crown-of-thorns starfish is a predatory starfish in Australia responsible for the destruction of about 40% of what's lost in the Great Barrier Reef. Now, bleaching is, in, you know, globally a huge issue. Um, Australia, specifically, the crown of thorn starfish is a huge issue. And so I guess I want to ask for, for these, you know, you know big scale, and what I love about this um, is, like, you know, large-scale geoengineering. Geo Do you guys know anything that's going on right now about being able to remediate the nutrient runoff from these farms? Because that's causing large amounts of impact that eventually hit the reef, which then affect our carbon dioxide. And take. No, not, not geoengineering. I'm, you know, I'm sorry. No worries. Oh. Yeah, the, the crown of thorn starfish, as you say, Stephen, is, is you know, the two big threats to the Great Barrier Reef are the marine um, heat waves, which are causing the bleaching, and the crown of thorns starfish. Um, the, the way the Australian uh, government is responding to this is through uh, trying to rebuild the corals, which uh, you were explaining to me before the, um, b b before the session. So th there are some research programs uh, you know, trying to further that type of work, of, of um, reef remediation, they're, they're calling it. Yeah. Um, so rebuilding the corals. But, but the, the, other, the other part of it is what we call the geoengineering part. The government aren't calling, calling it geoengineering. And, sure. and this is, um, as I said, some research, about $3 million they've put into marine cloud uh, brightening yeah. uh, research. Um, uh, marine films uh, to put on top of the water to act as a reflectant mm. and also some art um, art artificial um, upwelling around, I think it's more Reef, which is a, a tourist area where there's um, some high-value um, corals for tourism purposes. So there's money currently being put into, um, into, those, uh, into that research uh, from the Australian Government and the Queensland Government. Um, 
but um, it's, it's all under the banner of kind of reef remediation. So it's, um, it's, 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 it's putting it all in the same basket and, and not using the G word, the geoengineering yeah, word. Yeah, yeah, understandable. I guess that, that brought just one little con concept in my mind. You guys are doing this ocean iron fertilization. You're taking, um, I'm not sure exactly what type of ions and nutrients and you're putting it in to hopefully grow phytoplankton and other types of animals. Maybe there's a possibility to take a lot of the nutrient runoff from these massive industries stop it before it gets to the reef, collect it, and then bring it out further beyond where the crown of thorn starfish can, can eat it. Because one right. starfish gives birth to 50 million eggs. That is a huge issue now because, you know, in the past, one out of 50 million was a pretty low chance that they'd survive. But now we're seeing thousands each year. And when they get to about, you know, a foot and a half wide, they eat all the reef. And it's, that's the issue. It's like... Right that nutrient, it gives them that higher chance of survival. Right, so you're saying capture the nutrients as they're coming off the land, stop them getting close to shore, take them offshore and use them for fertilisation activities Perhaps. out there. I'll have to consult my oceanography colleagues as to whether that, that will work. Just an idea so from this conversation, so yeah. yeah okay, no, that's, that's good. <laughs> Thank you. Great, so uh, we're pretty much out of time. Uh, so if anybody has uh, further questions, I'm sure you can uh, just come and talk to the, the panelists here in the front, but please join me in thanking our uh, great panel for a very invited conversation. Thank you.